Pod Academy and I'm Amanda Barnes. Today I'm talking to Alan Sanchez, who's a researcher at the Young Lives Project at Oxford University. Uh, Alan's going to talk to us about research that he's been doing on child development in Peru. I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about what the Young Lives study is and what it's trying to achieve. The Young Lives study is basically an international longitudinal study of childhood poverty. Uh, We started in 2002 and the the intention is to track the livelihood of families for basically 15 years working in four different countries, in Peru, in Ethiopia, Vietnam and Andhra Pradesh in India. The project is led by Oxford University and we have uh, research partners in each of the countries. We use a variety of methods, quantitative methods and also qualitative methods. You know, the main objective in the end is to understand, to have a better understanding of the causes and consequences of childhood poverty. So how many children altogether are included in the study? 12,000. And then uh, we have 8,000 kids that we are tracking since, since they were age uh, between, between one and two years old in the year 2002, and we call them the younger cohort. And then there are other 4,000 kids that we are tracking also since 2002, and they were between seven and eight years old the year that we started uh, with the survey. So by now they are 18 years old. So generally, a sample of that kind of size, is, is that something that's kind of statistically representative of the population as a whole, more or less? We, we do not uh, intend to be nationally representative. We, we want our samples to be very informative of, the, of each of the countries, to observe uh, children growing up in communities with a variety of living standards, variation in terms of geographical location and ethnical groups, so that even though our intention is not to claim uh, national representativeness, we can certainly say many things about the characteristics in which these children are growing up in each of the countries. Why were those particular countries chosen? One important thing was to have diversity. So even within each country, we were looking to have diversity in terms of the communities that were sampled. But it was also important to have diversity in terms of the countries that we selected. So on the one hand, we're looking for regularities. So we want to, to, to be able to say whether certain processes are very similar regardless of the, the country, which we, we have found. But at the same time, some policies are very country-specific. And if you only focus in one country, then it means you're only able to say things about that specific country and the specific policies that take place in that place. But if you have other countries, then it means you observe a variety of uh, social policies and see their effects on children. So, Alan, your research, uh, some of it looked at what the data could tell you about what factors in early childhood and it had an impact on outcomes for them at later stages, even up to their mid-teens. Can you tell us what specifically your study was trying to find out? Yes, uh, this study is based on two studies that I did previously. Uh, in one of the studies, using data for Peru, For instance, uh, we found that there was a food price crisis a few years ago, and we were able to measure that this crisis had consequences on the early nutrition of those kids that were very young by the time that the crisis took place. But also that these kids 
later on had a, a lower cognitive development because of this crisis. So what this suggests is basically a linkage between nutrition and cognition. And then uh, in another study in which we use data from four countries, from the four countries in which we are uh, collecting data, we also found a strong, a strong association between early nutrition and the development of socio-emotional skills, such as aspirations and self-esteem. So what this suggests basically is that early nutrition is then an important determinant on the formation of cognitive as well as socio-emotional skills. So in, in the study in which I'm currently working, what we want to do is, what we're doing is to build a structural model in which early nutrition can, can have an impact on these two dimensions of skills. Presumably you can't just sit there counting the calories that a child takes in every day. How have you been able to measure their kind of nutritional status or how much they had to eat when they were at certain ages? What we do is we use anthropometric information. So uh, for children that are observed early in life, the physical height of the, of the child is, it, it conveys good information about the nutritional history of that child. So what we use are uh, the standards of the WHO, the World Health Organization. Okay. This standard will tell you for a, ch a child of a given age, uh, should have a, a given height, and then you compare how far away is, is the child that you observe relative to the standard. When the, when the child is too far away, being uh, too small compared to the standard, it means that he, this, this kid is likely to be undernourished. You know, in the, in the countries in which we are collecting data, about a third of the kids in our samples are undernourished by the WHO standards. Is the height a child should be at a given age, is that standard across all different ethnic groups when they're young, or is there any variation that you need to take into account? Children have the same growth potential during the first years of life, up to the age of seven, actually. It is true that uh, after, you know, especially beyond puber puberty, it's not only an issue of nutritional status, but uh, the, there, are, there are other things that uh, become part of the determinants of, of your height. So what we're using is only information up to the age of seven, because only during that period you can actually claim that height is a good indicator of nutrition. And the standard of the World Health Organization is based on observing healthy children in many different countries, not only in developed countries, but countries in South America and Africa. So it's pretty standard up to the age of seven? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And what about cognitive skills? How do you test those without having any cultural bias creeping in? In each of our countries, what we have is we observe multiple indicators of cognitive achievement, such as the scores of a child in a reading, compre reading comprehension test, or in a vocabulary knowledge test, or in a math test. And we have this information, so every time we visit the families, we, we uh, collect this information. And basically what we do is we use statistical techniques uh, that allows you to extract the the implicit, ability, the implicit ability that the child has based on how well he's doing in each of the cognitive tests. And we use a similar procedure for, uh, to measure social-emotional skills. So we have information about the aspirations of the child, the self-esteem, the, uh, the agency of the child. This information allows us to extract an indicator of social-emotional skills 
which is basically what drives the results of the kids in this in this test. When you say agency, what does that mean to kind of layperson? Basically, it's, it's uh, the level of mastery you have of your own life. So something like the capacity to decide what you want to do and then take action to pursue your own goals. Exactly, because it is agency as well as self-esteem have been found to be very important predictors of uh, labour market outcomes, which is why actually we are interested in cognitive skills and social-emotional skills, because they, they matter not only per se, but because they are going to have an impact on the labour market outcomes of these children eventually. Just interested to know how you go about measuring those sort of things like self-esteem and agency, because they sound like more subjective, I guess. Yes, it's true. So some years ago, actually, we started looking for international scales that had been used to estimate these dimensions. And even though you know there is a lot of work behind and they have been validated for, for other countries, we thought it was important to to just make sure that these questions were going to work in the context of our countries. So we did some validations uh, of, uh, of these instruments in, in, in our countries. And so based on that, we rephrased some of the items, we dropped some of the items, and we, include, and we included other ones. So that we, we are sure that this, these uh, questions that we're using now can be understood by the children, given their context. So... Just moving on to your own findings, your analysis highlights evidence that height development is important for later height development but also affects later cognitive achievement too and there's a link between between cognitive skills and qualities like self-esteem and agencies. Um, Can you tell us about what seems to affect what? One of the main findings is that early nutrition at the age of one to two year old can have long-lasting implications for cognitive skills uh, up to the age of 14 to 15. And even though uh, early nutrition also has an impact on social-emotional skills, the effect on social-emotional skills is not as persistent as it is for cognitive skills. So by the age of 14 to 15, we no longer uh, find effects of early nutrition on social-emotional skills. But another insight of, of, of my results are that even though early nutrition is quite important, it's, it's not the only aspect that matters. So for instance, a nutritional status at later ages also matter. And this implies, for instance, that if a, if a given child was undernourished very early in life, that's going to have consequences. But if the child uh, can recover from a, from a nutritional point of view, then some of the negative effects uh, can be reverted. So what this means is that the, you know, the early childhood period is important, and that's what we find, but it's not the only period of the, of the childhood that matters, and you can make a difference even at later stages. So it's somehow possible to have some recompense later for, for some children Ex- exactly. or all children? Exactly. I mean, w- w- what we find is that... Uh, in most of the cases, you are, you are still able to do something. And um, can you be certain that the nutrition deficit is the cause of the cognitive problems later, or is it that possible that both of them could be caused by the same thing, like perhaps just being raised in a family that's uh, struggling a lot to make ends meet? 
Yes, well, that's, that's actually a, a very important question. In one of our previous studies, for instance, we use actually information of the, on the food price crisis and also on other household level shocks that affected the family, such as job loss or uh, climatic events, as sources of variation in the situation of the, in the economy of the family that in turn have effects on the nutrition status of, it, of the children. So what this means is that what you, you need information about shocks that affect the household and the, the household cannot do anything about it and this, have, this has consequences for, for, the, for the children on an, at a nutritional level. So in, in this model that we have estimated, the, the height for the age, the, the nutritional status of, of the kid, which is measured by the height of the kid, it is we observe that household shocks affect uh, the nutritional status and this in turn affect the uh, development of, of, of skills. So in, in such a way, you can be sure that it, it is not just that there are some families that are better at raising uh, kids with better health and better educational outcomes, but something else that is out of, that, uh, that the family cannot do anything about it is affecting them and this has nutritional effects and in the long term effects on skills. So really the existence of the food crisis helped you um, be sure that uh, you eliminate the possibility that it's just families who are very much struggling that cause children to be both undernourished and cognitively behind. Exactly. A statistical model we also control for the characteristics of the, of the, of the household and but Eventually, what you do in these cases is you use information of natural experiments that take place within each country. And so the, 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 the shocks that we have found that are important are country-specific. For instance, in the case of Peru, the, the most important shock that takes place and that can affect the household economy, therefore the nutritional status of the child, are uh, low-temperature shocks in the highlands. So when the temperature goes below historical levels, that actually creates problems for the households in terms of uh, it affects the agricultural outcomes. It can kill uh, the crop, basically. It also kills the livestock. We use these natural experiments to make sure that the variation in nutritional status that we are observing is not driven by household characteristics, but by something else. But what seemed to be the most important links that you discovered between nutrition and later development? So I think the, the most important finding so far is that so early nutrition is a predictor of uh, cognitive and socio-emotional skills, but on the other hand, the long-term implications are, are only observed for cognitive outcomes, whereas in the case of socio-emotional skills, the effect is not as persistent, which is, which is probably due because uh, there are other factors affecting socio-emotional skills besides nutrition. So that's one, one, one important finding. But then at the same time, the, the results of the model suggest that even though early nutrition matters, uh, nutritional status at later stages also matter as well. Mm-hmm. So although the early childhood period is important, even during the mid-childhood and the late childhood, there are ways to compensate for what happened before. What does it, can your analysis suggest about what ages are particularly important for maybe policies aiming to improve children's later physical development? In, 
to a certain extent we're constrained by the characteristics of our sample so we we observe uh, children at the age of one to two years and then at the age of four to five and at the age of seven to eight and then later at the age of 11 to 12 and 14 to 15 early uh, so the nutritional status the, we are we only have tools to measure nutritional status properly up to the age of seven to eight so within this period we find that be- between the age of one and eight it is possible to make a difference we haven't been able at, at least in, in my research i have been able to to obtain a result saying that at the age whatever you did at the age of one is not going to be able to be fixed later within this period so you've got some more um, another round of data gathering coming up and that would go up to children that are a bit older yeah about 18 year olds or something are you planning to do any further research? Yes, I mean the one of the objectives of the of the of the study is to understand uh, the consequences of childhood poverty, and for that it will be important to see uh, what's gonna happen with these families and these children that are gonna become adults very soon in the labor market or about the decision for higher education because that's going to be the result of a process that took place at the household level and at the, and at the community level. So uh, we are keen to, to, to be able to analyse the data that is coming in the next round. So by that time you'll be able to find out what, how 18-year-olds might have been affected by their earlier experiences as small children. Exactly. I mean, remember that we have two cohorts. So the young cohort is going to be uh, between 14 and 15 years in, in the next round of data. But we also have the older cohort, and the older cohort is going to be between 21 and 22 by the time that we visit them again. So we're using data from both cohorts already to look at the results of, at the, at the consequences of childhood poverty at the age of up to, uh, right now, 18 to 19, and in the next round, up to the age of 21 to 22. What kind of things do you think you'll be looking for in that sort of age group when they're in their 20s? Well, it is country-specific. Uh, for instance, anecdotally, it's not uh, we, we don't have the official numbers, but in the older cohort, from the latest data that we have, we have found that there are many girls or women by now that have children. About a, a large proportion of the sample have children by now. So, uh, and the, something similar, although of less magnitude uh, is observed in Peru. So this gives you the opportunity to study the intergenerational transmission of poverty because you know, we are tracking them since they were very very small. Uh, in the case of the older cohort, we, since the age of seven, and by now at the age of 18 and 19, they already have children. And we have all the history of this family, so we can really have a very clear understanding of uh, their decision-making. Why is it that they are becoming parents so so young. And then, in addition to that, it is the, the decision between going to higher education or starting to work or do a combination of both uh, work and study. So the, the decision of time allocation during this period of life is going to be a consequence of processes that took place before. So these two outcomes are going to be very important to analyze. In your just recent study, there seemed to be a little bit of difference between some of the um, the country data. So it seemed that Vietnam stood out a little bit 
I think two of our countries, Peru and, Peru and Vietnam, are doing a bit better than the other two countries uh, and in terms of economic growth that had happened during the last few years. And also the, the income per capita is higher, especially in Peru. And also uh, the, the Peruvian sample, Peru in general, is, has higher levels of urbanization than the other countries. So what this means, for instance, is that when you try to look for relationships, there are what we call complementary assets that matter. For instance, uh, if you think about the impact of a nutritional program, the impact of a nutritional program on cognitive outcomes, because there is a link between the two, can be amplified. What do you mean by, by nutritional program? A nutritional program, for instance, uh, such as, as in Peru, we have the Juntos program, which is a cash conditional transfer program so families receive money but they have to uh, re- they receive the money on the condition that they will send their children to the health post and then they will receive plenty of information about you know what type of nutrition these children should have so you, you know for instance you could implement the same program in two different countries but then it, the, the, the effects of the program are, are going to be affected by the characteristics of the families so if in Peru the average, level, the average level of education of the mothers is higher compared to other country, then potentially the effects of these programs on, on the nutritional level and on the cognitive level are likely to be higher. And conversely, although you know, I don't have specific evidence to, to show you about this, but if you, it could be the case that you can have a very good program, but the level of education of the mothers is so, is, is, is so small that this actually makes it very difficult for the program to actually have a, a real effect on children. So really it's a combination of maybe what sort of government interventions are available but also the capacity of the population to benefit from those programmes. And also the characteristics of the communities, for instance. If there is no proper sanitation, for instance, then a, a program such as Juntos this cash conditional transfer program that I was mentioning might, have, might, not, might not have an effect because everything good that you try to do is then, is, is, is then negatively affected by the fact that there is no enough infrastructure in the community. What do you think that longitudinal data collections allowed you to find out that previous studies haven't been able to because there have already been some studies about the link between nutrition and cognitive skills? One thing that we are allowed to see are, uh, is not only the short-term, but the medium-term and the long-term impact of uh, different specific programs, for instance, in, in each of the countries. But then one uh, strength of the study is that we are looking at four countries. And these countries are all different, you know, uh, but if you are able to observe that at a certain input in the in the in the uh, production of cognitive skills or social emotional skills is important in the four countries. Then it means that the relationship you have observed uh, is a regularity, regardless of the context. This input matters. Whereas on the other hand, you might be able to observe that some programs or or some other aspects of of the family might be more or less important depending on depending on the country and depending on the context. So, you know, we can make a claim of external validity, which is that uh, whenever you observe something working in one country, it might not work in the other country. But we have the chance to do the same type of analysis in 
for very different countries. So if it, if it works in one country only, then you need to understand further why it's working in this country and not in the other countries. And if it works in the four countries, then what you're probably finding is a regularity. So you found out some really interesting things, haven't you? What do you think are the implications that practitioners and policymakers can take on board from your findings? Uh, you mean from, from, from the one, one important implication is that, you know, you, you should be looking not only, I mean, the early childhood period is a very important period and probably critical for, the, for, investment, for investing uh, in the child. But that doesn't mean that uh, you should put all your money there. You know, the, the, the childhood process, uh, or the, the process of accumulation of, of skills takes place during the early childhood period, during the mid-childhood, late childhood, and adolescence, and even up to early, early adulthood. So the implication is that you should also be looking at what happens during later periods because there is a scope for intervention later on and there is a scope to uh, revert some of the bad things that might have happened earlier in life. Um, there's often concern that policy delivery is very siloed um, with educational specialists looking at schooling issues and nutrition being seen as to do with health policy there is a always, there is an obvious connection and you can think of uh, nutritional interventions as educational interventions because the more you invest in nutrition then the more likely is that the kid is going to do well at school um, for instance uh, just to give an example in one of my studies we found that uh, early nutrition was affecting cognitive development during the preschool period. So these kids, most of them at least, were not attending school yet, and then, and, but still, the undernourished kids were already in disadvantage, and this was before beginning the school. So, you know, if, if, uh, if you can make sure that these kids are, are having the, an adequate nutrition, then you are giving them a better start at the school. Of course, it's not the only thing that matters, after that is when you really need to start focusing on specific educational policies. But you can see nutritional policies as part of the solution, let's say. I think people at Young Lives have been starting to talk about something called a life course approach. Um, what does that actually mean in terms of policy priorities? One concept that we use is a life cycle approach. Is that what you... It, it is basically the idea that there are different stages of, uh, in the formation of human capital. When I, when I speak about the skills, in a way I was speaking about the human capital that, that these children are going to be able to then bring to the labor market. You know, you need to understand that there are different stages and each stage has its own characteristics. So you should be uh, designing a specific policies for each of these stages. I think that's one important implication. So for instance, uh, uh, right, right now we have good data for children observed during adolescence and uh, during adolescence an, an important uh, dimension of uh, development are risky behaviors this is something that you were not interested in, in earlier periods but now during adolescence you have to be very interested in, 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 in risky behaviors and the, the policies that have to be designed are specific to that age group therefore so is that going to be one of the next stages of 
is going to be yes we have already collected data on risky behaviors uh, in the older cohort at the age of 14 and between 14 and 15 and now at the age of 18 to 19 the young cohort they're still too too young to be assessed uh, in those dimensions but the, for the older cohort we already have data collected in the four countries and uh, we're looking forward to start doing research well, that's another story so I think that's all I have to ask you today, Alan. So, um, Alan Sanchez, thank you very much for your interview. Thank you very much, Amanda.